Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Dan, from the West Coast. It's strange to be back in LA. Last time I was here, it was for attending Disneyland a week before a pandemic, you may recall. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> and of course, you know, I have many memories myself. Uh, that was a stopping ground of mine for uh, well over seven years. It's where you learned to dance about architecture. It is quite literally where I learned <laughs> to dance about architecture. It is actually the birthplace of Unfrozen. Indeed it is, yes. And so here we are. It's appropriate to have it back here in podcast form. And um, yeah, and I'm coming from the glorious Los Angeles confines, my closet here at the Doubletree Hilton in downtown LA. Uh, I'm in town for this week for uh, Commotion LA, which is our mobility event we started like five years ago. And uh, this year it's at the, Jap the Japanese American National Museum in Little Tokyo. And this is not the glamorous hipsterified end of downtown I have discovered. It is like City Hall and not pretty or populated as far as I can tell. Yeah, but I do recommend if you are there, I mean, this won't surprise you, um, but you, you will find some very good Japanese food. If you want to go to uh, some automated sushi, um, I can make some res uh, recommendations. There's a three-tiered sushi delivery system, probably just a few blocks from you, just waiting for your uh, for your patronage. Oh, I can't wait. I hope, hopefully it hasn't been hor horribly uh, disrupted by DoorDash or anyone else there. It'd be nice to know there's still some uh, some beautiful things left in this world. Well, the thing about it is that it's actually very COVID safe because everything's delivered to you by machine uh, on a three-track system, one of which is subterranean, like for the garbage disposal, like uh, like Disneyland. And uh, it comes in domes, you know, that are, that are protected, so waiters' hands never touch it. I will have to check that out. I mean, man, when you put it that way, that's a total trend of the pandemic, right? I mean, I've been talking to Chinese, you know, autonomous vehicle CEOs who are doing deliveries for Kentucky Fried Chicken in Shanghai using similar tech, only it's, you know, an autonomous robot. So, um, yes, that's uh, exactly exactly the kind of thinking that has propelled urban robotics that way, too. Uh, so ground zero, so to speak. But what are you up to? Oh, I'm uh, basically just... Uh hanging out here in Chicago. Um, I'm surrounded by the uh, authentic sounds of the elevated, which will be interrupting me about every three and a half minutes. Um, or I should say backgrounding me, providing the soundtrack of the city. I think I can hear it now um, for authenticity's sake. But uh, I've actually just come from our uh, own conference. Uh, my day job is uh, heading up research at the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat, um, which successfully staged a multi-city conference over the last... Uh, week and the some of the key events were here in Chicago, where we heard a presentation from Sidewalk Labs, which, you know, smarting a little bit from their experience in Toronto, has nevertheless uh, decided to take their mass timber production uh, scheme uh, and productize it, um, hoping to be able to offer it to uh, third parties. Um, their belief is that you know the cost savings and the environmental bona fides of constructing a mass timber are worth throwing some of the resources behind uh, of the alphabet organization. Um, so it sounds pretty interesting. Well, well, we'll see how that goes. I would say Katera did the same thing. I wonder if, I wonder, I have not followed it, but for those who have followed the, the Katera bankruptcy after one of, you know, the many SoftBank would be disruptive companies fell apart, they have a CLT factory out there that they actually built at great expense and a number of would-be vultures were swooping around. So it's interesting. I, I, I haven't followed the Sidewalk Labs proposal on it per se, other than, you know, the gorgeous Thomas Heatherwick drawings, of course, that really tried to legitimize, you know, that entire project by rendering it in this beautiful timber. It was sort of like a, a true stalking horse in a way. Um, but I wonder if, we're, if CLT is perhaps going through that moment of, um, 
you know, of, of, of disenchantment there where all sorts of productive assets end up on the other side that people will finally put to good use. So maybe, maybe Sidewalks learned its lessons there, among, among other lessons. It, it seems like they're less interested in the totalizing uh, urban uh, picture that they were attempting with, with the Toronto project, which, which obviously rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, not so much because of what they were proposing to construct, but because of the data they were proposing to collect on people and, and the internet of things and the internet of everything. Um, so it seems like they've backed off of that a little bit and they're more interested in sort of using their software largesse to help with the optimization of the product, which, you know, it, it sounds as if they want to be, they're almost proposing a, a, a dumbbell shaped um, kind of structure where they, they are involved in the beginning of the manufacturing process. And then at the end with consulting, um, bringing it into reality, presumably, you know, um, applying the finishes and wiring and, and, uh, have some sensors, but they're not so interested in marketing the products to developers um, on Moss. It's a it's kind of a weird approach. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole lot of like you know rethinking that entire stack. I don't think we need to get too deep into prop tech because neither of us is an expert there. But I've been seeing all these examples. I mean, there's you know out out here in Southern California, there's Apt, uh, which is founded by uh, Peter and Fed Novikov. Uh, the brothers who at one time ran the Skunk Works backyard project for Airbnb that sort of quietly mm -hmm. went away. But they've got a startup now called Apt and they're trying to be, you know, natively integrated developers. So they've like figured out, they've analyzed like every uh, buildable zoning envelope in, so in SoCal that they could build multifamily into. And they're basically, yeah, the, the, the overall effort here to productize, it's always the word that comes up, right? Like how do we productize housing, whether that's modular or prefab or figuring out the zoning, all these companies are like, desperately trying to figure out how to disrupt, you know, one off wood frame home construction, which, which is hilarious, because it's proven impossible to beat. I was I always see companies try to do it and think, uh, like, th this is a win win, because maybe someday somebody will crack it. And that could be a very good thing. And in the meantime, we get to watch all these hubristic startups, like crash on the shoals of, you know, of trying to disrupt this industry. Um, but one other thought on Sidewalk Toronto is, you know, I, I have been working on this theory, and I've been talking to, to Anthony Townsend at Cornell Tech and Mike Joroff at MIT, who did a project, I don't know, 10 years ago now called New Century Cities. It was looking at master plan developments. And uh, we're trying to cook up a sequel to it that I think takes the whole thing inside out. And so I, my argument is, is that projects like Songdo, right, which I wrote about in my book, which like kicked off in the early 2000s, up to Sidewalk Toronto, were these efforts to build urban mega projects as as prototypes for building like a self-contained urban service universe. Like it wasn't just about the data, they were gonna build applications and, and they would be highlighted in these projects. And then ideally they would sell it elsewhere. And if you lived in these projects, you would use their applications, like building an app store, an Apple app store for everyday life. And like Cisco execs at the time would tell you that's exactly what they wanted to do. Uh, I wrote about <laughs> it in the Fast Company. And that whole model is gone now because rather than like use the city and urban form as a test bed to trial services in a high-end way. Now it's the whole rise of like dark kitchens and ghost restaurants and the services layer, which is just basically hiding the whole urban realm under the interface. And like, you know, your food's being prepared in literally somebody's house, if you use chef or in, you know, random, you know, installed kitchen facilities or maybe in the back of the restaurant and like everything's sort of being obscured. Like it's like the whole polarity of it has reversed. And instead of prestige urbanism, it's now this, the app it smears urbanism everywhere. So I'm still I'm still working that out on paper there, but that's sort of like my whole thing. It's like that Sidewalk Toronto was like the high Gothic of this, and I'm not you know I'm, I'm curious if anyone gets back there, but they're still trying. Like Hyundai is doing a, a big mega project in downtown Seoul, 
uh, with UN Studio out of the Netherlands, which is developing a smart district in Brainport, the Netherlands. So we'll see if they try. And of course, you know, Seoul's getting into the metaverse as well. City Hall is going to do their own pocket meta universe. So we'll see uh, how those trends combined. God, having flashbacks to last episode now. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Mungerverse. The Mungerverse. But um, but yeah. So uh, any other highlights out of the conference there? I love it when skyscraper people hang out. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know it was very much a timber story. I think timber kind of stole the show as we kind of expected it to. Um, you know, the IBC codes um, have come out, the 2021 version, which basically allows um, uh, American uh, or North American projects to rise to 18 stories, which is a pretty big deal um, because now there's a way to sort of standardize construction of the type of the type of high rise or mid rise housing that um, is sorely needed in a lot of cities where, you know, um, we have housing crises, particularly in the Bay Area. Um, and one of the representatives um, who came uh, to present was from Lendlease um, talking about how they have, you know, a, a portfolio that they're trying to execute, um, which they were not really going to be able to do without massive exceptions to existing fire codes, which take a long time to negotiate and affect project deliverability, right? Yep. So, um, you know, now that the IBC 2021 is is a thing, um, they're able to construct um, an affordable complex uh, in uh, in San Jose, which obviously is in desperate need of such things. Um, and we'll see if the, the synergy between what, you know, the traditional developer um, turning to prefabrication and to, to mass timber is able to do can dovetail with what um, somebody like a sidewalk lab wants labs wants to do, which is to, is to sort of own the production process. Um, we'll see if there's a happy medium in there. Um, it would really be great if, you know, <laughs> developers decided all of a sudden that they were interested in affordable housing because now there was a rapid construction process that wasn't difficult to communicate to trades that was, you know, was okay with the unions. They didn't feel like they were being sidelined by, you know, robots or by factory production. Um, and if all those stars were to align at one place. Well, I mean, the question of affordable housing, obviously, is an arch question that hangs over us. And I want to use your mention of it there to pivot to the story that I just read on the flight here to L.A. Because every, like, every paragraph made my jaw drop. It was a magisterial piece on will home prices ever not be crazy again in the New York Times magazine. And it focused on Austin, you know, ground zero for this. And, you know, and it really it was a fantastic piece. Um, Francesca Mari, I believe, was a reporter of it. They really tied all these trends together with this of like, you know, the, the, the you know, the failure to to do permitting, the failure to actually construct the supply chain issues, which has made it difficult, the constraints on supply during the pandemic, and just like the insane explosion of, you know, of, of housing prices in Austin and, you know, and of course everywhere that, you know, it, it's always funny for me, you and I haven't grown up in coastal housing markets there. Like, you know, we're spending time in New York, like I'm, you know, moving to Montreal, so I like, you know, we bought a house and like probably overpaid and, you know, and came at it like aggressive New Yorkers way over the ask. And it's hilarious to us that like everybody has to do the same. Everybody's brain is broken in that same way where, you know, you now have to do that. And it raises, to me, it raises some interesting questions about, you know, can you, what does affordable housing even mean at this point after that run up in prices? Does it come back down to any appreciable level without like true, you know, major market manipulation in the form of, of social public housing um, to do that and drive down what market rate is. And then the other one, of course, is like, is the, yeah, the other piece the times piece notely uh, justly notes um, the rise of all these sort of single family renters, which are, which are buying thousands of units. So when you talk about like, you know, people trying to build thousands of units at once or using some of these techniques, 
well, you know, you have, you know, I think Invitation Homes has a deal to build 7,500 new homes with a, with a builder, Quilta, uh, that's going to build them from scratch. And I'm watching all these construction companies and interiors firms are starting to think of like, you know, housing residential was a whole thing once upon a time, you know, too many individuals didn't really have economies of scale, et cetera. And now it's becoming like, you know, a mass product as well. So, you know, housing got financialized and now it's being productized um, one way or another, you know. So it'd be really interesting to see how these techniques are brought to bear here to roll this off. And that's that's the question that lingers in my mind. Like if, if companies are going to put the expense here to, you know, deploy new technology and techniques to do mass construction of housing in large scale environments, what's to keep them from, why, why would they sell it if, if housing prices are rising? What's to keep it from turning out as mass single family rentals in the hands of big institutional buyers? I don't know. These are, these are the kinds of things I was thinking about before we, before we sat down of like, you know, that and like the Zillow, Zillow algorithm, like what can architecture do about the Zillow algorithm, Dan? Like what, what role does the, does, you know, those of us on the built, built environment side of this have to, to, to play against, you know, the various algorithms and financial systems that are manipulating all of it? I don't know. I, you know, we, we need like a CS course for, uh, for uh, architects perhaps, but I guess that's where we get into parametricism and then we're in Schumacher's world, which is terrifying. Yeah, that's right. Where there where there is no public housing or uh, public parks, yeah. for that matter. Yes, Sell, selling off Hyde Park. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, I I get a little nervous when I hear about these, I hear words like productization, and I and I see mass production techniques being deployed, and and it's great that it's lowering the cost of construction and the barriers to, you know, profitably building affordable housing for the masses. That that is. Um, you know, aesthetically pleasing, at least in the sense of being exposed to timber and all of its uh, its biophilic effects. But um, yeah, I mean, we don't want uh, panelax. You know, we don't want barracks. We want architectural differentiation. We want places that respond to the locality, places that respond to local conditions. And I fret a little bit that if we're able to come up with a new way of productization and financialization that we're not going to see that we're just going to see a lot of well product no indeed absolutely well well that well it's it's funny i was thinking this through also when it comes to you know home and care and affordability so uh i'm doing an event on december 3rd in montreal you're invited dan everyone's invited who's listening um to come join us there at the canadian center for architecture which Again, moving to Montreal in basically on the eve of a pandemic, it's taken me two and a half years to get to the CCA, and it, it's incredible. They had an amazing exhibit that just opened called The Section of Now. Um, sort of, I forget the subtitle is Architectural Interventions into the Present. And, you know, I feel for the curatorial team because it's like basically the, the, the exhibit is about all this. Like, you know, imagine me waving my hands, like everything out there. And so there's sections on work and and of course the protests and you know and, and intergenerational families and care and spiraling costs and all those sorts of things and trying to actually exhibit that in a gallery setting which is not easy to do um but my friends marissa marissa moranyan and rafi siegel of course who are my venice architecture biennale teammates which is closing this weekend um by the time you listen to this we're we're doing an event there i'm, I'm moderating them and discussing like the sort of crisis of care you know and thinking about like new models of care and and again, it just sort of comes up that, you know, what reading, reading this exhibit, a lot of the architectural proposed interventions are, of course, you know, new models of intergenerational living or thinking of new ways of organizing people in space. And again, not to sound like a broken record, but like, you know, you know, having that put up against some of the financial incentives and models and, you know, Zillow out of control algorithms, um, you know, to sort of underscore some of the, like the limited tool set there and how sort of the discussion goes, uh, on which I was at a note right before we started taping this, uh, I got an invitation from Axios, you know, to 
join a conversation on the future of care. And, you know, it had a, uh, two panels I didn't I didn't recognize, but the presenter uh, who's going to talk is from Meta, you know, as in Metaverse, as in Facebook. So I, I shudder to think uh, how how senior care in the Metaverse is going to work. And um, yeah, the dystopia just gets more sponsored every day. So, but but for those of us, we'll leave it in the show notes. Uh, our, our event at the CCA, we're also going to do a virtual event on the 19th on Friday with the Philippines Pavilion uh, to sort of talk about what we've learned about how we will live together during our six months of the installation there in Venice. Which was glorious, and I still have good memories of that. Uh, indeed. I mean, certainly, certainly it's great to be back in the world. I had friends at dinner asked, last night asking me if I was just sort of like out back at it. And yeah, I was told them absolutely. It feels great to be out in the world again. And and I just got, you know, got my booster. I'm, I'm uh, like literally three days after my fully baked Pfizer on top of Johnson & Johnson. I've got my John Daly. Couldn't feel better. So, you know, again, those of you listening, worried about boosters, get it. My arm was sore for a day and I had no side effects for either of my shots. So worth it for the security. That's an advertisement. Um, well, yeah. tell us a little bit about what you're presenting at, uh, at uh, Commotion or even what Commotion well, is for those who are not initiated. Yeah, well, Commotion is interesting. So Commotion set out, I, I helped set this up with New Cities like five years ago. Commotion, as I like to think of it, and it's interesting the timing this year, Commotion is like an auto show for a world after auto shows, right? It's the focus is on new mobility. So, you know, various years, first year we talked about some about urban robotics, which was then nascent. And the second year was really about the scooter revolution. And it's gone from there this year, the main sponsors are actually urban aerial mobility companies. So Volocopter and Whisk and Hyundai's, you know, aerial arm. And so I, I'm sort of uh, out of the main thread on that one, but it's going to be curious to see because like half its DNA is good public transportation and talking about the pandemic and the other half are like, you know, technologies that I personally regard as anti-urban to the core. So uh, should be interesting how the cognitive dissonance goes. But yeah, but commotion got started as a way of, way of sort of bringing these conversations together. And, you know, it's actually not quite co-located, but it's synchronous with the LA Auto Show this year. And it was really interesting watching, you know, the German OEMs do their first big mobility conference uh, in Munich earlier this year, which was basically the grown-up version of what we've been doing. And by what we've been doing, I mean, don't spend your time in a conference center, go test drive vehicles, go out into a real world urban environment or a real street um, and do that. I have to say that the best memory I'll ever have of commotion, I think was our second or third year when we were in the arts district here. And, um, and yeah, you're literally just walking down a closed street and people are riding bikes and scooters and zooming around you on hoverboards. And it was a sort of weird confusion of modes kind of thing. And, um, a lot, you know, total live fire exercise. So hopefully no one got hurt, but Anyway, so we'll be there. So we're gonna have all sorts of fun sessions, uh, you know, on both the crisis facing cities in terms of moving people around and the possibilities of urban air mobility and just sort of, you know, other stuff, electric vehicles, COP26. I'm moderating a virtual session with the UK government on, you know, basically what what they achieved and what they didn't achieve uh, in Glasgow. So uh, with all, of course, the major automakers refusing to sign a statement saying they'd sell their last uh, internal combustion vehicle by 2040, when we won't be, you know, uh, when we won't be selling them anyway, people, you know, at that point, the market will have priced it out. So anyway, so that's what we're doing here. And so, yeah, and, and again, and listeners, depending on when this gets published, I encourage you to head over to commotionla.com and I'll see you, uh, see you at the Japanese uh, American National Museum. And that sounds like a, quite an endorsement uh, for what should be a pretty exciting event. I was looking at the speaker roster and it's, it's really extensive. Um, so hands together for you know, to John Rosant and the team for putting that together. Yeah, we'll see how it comes together. It's fun being back in the conference world, you know. Um, 
I, I would say one random note, by the way, I almost forgot, you know, uh, when it comes to the CCA exhibit. So one thing that was, you know, being out in the world again, that was so special to me is like the CCA has a great bookstore, like as you would expect, but it was the first bookstore that I've been in since the pandemic, like just however it turned out. And, you know, also being a parent, like I don't have time to linger. I managed to carve out time to like go and linger in a bookstore with like deep cuts on on urban stuff, you know, multiple Harvard GSD publications on past exhibits. I need to go back and get like a monograph on John Portman's designs that like the, the GSD did, which looks amazing. Um, but the one thing that really stood out for me, and this was amazing because, you know, Jane Jacobs, you know, patron saint more Canadian than she is a New Yorker in terms of life lived. Um, but I discovered there in a book called The Last Interview with Jane Jacobs, uh, she wrote a book in 1980 based on lectures where she advocated for Quebec secession uh, on the grounds that, you know, that Montreal would be on more evil, even footing with Toronto if it was. And like literally the last question to her in her last interview is, you know, if you had to write that book again, would you do it? And she said, absolutely. The conditions are still the same. So it's amazing to me that the last public thought on Jane Jacobs' mind is Quebec should leave Canada. Um, that is, that is surprising. <laughs> yes, it's really amazing. I feel like Jane was really speaking to me from beyond the grave there, that like that I made the right decision to move there. So thank you for your benediction, St. Jane. Well, I mean, I, I, I certainly don't think anyone can argue with you having made, made good on the, uh, the threat to move to Canada uh, in totem. Um, but uh, yeah, Quebec specifically um, is, is kind of another animal. Uh, by the way, did you know that you are cited in the first... Uh, in the introduction to Parag Khanna's new book, Move. Oh yes, I am Dan. I'm also in, I'm cited in like the first paragraph of his essay in the Globe and Mail, adapting that. Uh, my wife was a bit concerned when we started getting text messages from friends, but like, hey, your husband's in the Globe and Mail about why you guys moved to Canada. We're like, oh no. Um, but it's true. Parag and I wrote a piece. The origin of that book uh, comes from a piece that we wrote about in 2013 called uh, Where Will You Live in 2050? And you know. As co-authors do on random pieces, we talk through our ideas and we settled on the idea that like really the best places to be would not be smart cities or high-tech cities. It would be cities with like good climate models and abundant fresh water and ideally really good governance that they would be able to handle the crises. The joke is that after that, Prague moved to Singapore, great governance, <laughs> terrible resources, absolutely has none other than, you know, uh, it's great wastewater recycling. Uh, and then you, and then I went to Quebec, which has great resources. I mean, Hydro Quebec has so much water, people just leave the faucets on growing up. Um, and then terrible, insane governance. And I say that in a loving way, Quebec, but but yeah, um, you know, they've got their own ideas about Anglophones in general and, uh, and and various things there. So so yeah, so that's sort of how we ended up there. So yeah, so I mean Prague and I are still like working on projects around this. You know, he's got a software tool, Climate Alpha, that he's out there hawking around of like, you know, not just figuring out like where the risk is for communities, but like where should you build? Like, you know trying to change that conversation to like the really big developers who are pouring into Texas and trying to get them out of there and out of Florida and, you know, starting to build where there's actually going to be safer regions. So, so we'll see, we're, we're, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to get people to come around to this one, but this gets back to the perversity of like the whole development industry. Like, you know, if your hold time is like under five years, the climate disaster is literally someone else's problem after you sold. So I, I don't know. We're, we're working on it slowly. Well, I would think, you know, just also to tie a couple things together, you know, that, Despite the, the sort of localized issues with, with governance in, in, in Quebec, you know, I mean, you've got a couple of other dynamics that are working for you that are related to what we were talking about earlier, which is the, the mass timber industry, right? I mean, if it's going to be a selling point that you can build well-insulated, and that's an emphasis, um, 
buildings that uh, have good operational energy characteristics, as well as, uh, you know, a, a relatively small carbon footprint in terms of the sourcing, so localized timber, um, as well as uh, all the transport uh, aspects of it. Um, combine that with the investment that they're making in, in RAM, which is their uh, regional metro that uh, is uh, making use of some old uh, transit lines as well as forging a path to Pierre Trudeau International Airport and the like. I, I don't know. I think the odds are pretty good for, for Montreal, especially if it starts to get gradually warmer. Yeah, we'll see. You know, the other, I mean, the other note of like local politics. So I, let, let's sort of segue over to uh, mayoral politics for a second. Like, uh, you know, Valerie Plant, who is our sort of maverick mayor, whose core campaign plank, as far as I can tell, is, you know, building more bicycle lanes, which, you know, considered controversial. Um, but also, you know, Quebec has one of the most aggressive sort of like social housing requirements, you know, new new project developments in North America. So, you know, it'll be interesting. Her second her second term and this election was all about affordable housing. Montreal is going through its inflection point. Like, you know, I've talked jokingly about how moving to Montreal in 2019 felt like moving to New York in 1999. And yeah, like in the worst possible way, like crossing the sort of, you know, Bloombergian gentrification tipping point. So they're, they're trying to rein that back in. It'll be interesting to see like whether Plant has the tools because the province owns a lot of the machinery to do that uh, and whether they have like the will to do it. There was a lot of criticism of, of, her, uh, of her team from the left this time around, but you know, but she won pretty overwhelmingly. Um, but like, look at like Michelle Wu in Boston. I mean, if, like there's like, you know, we want to see like a mayor can change the public realm. I mean, she is being inaugurated uh, today uh, as we take this November 16th, a uh, really short handover period. And, you know, she wants to make free public transit and she wants to have aggressive rent control and expand supply, which, you know, on paper is kind of the solution to the housing crisis. But like, got to be very careful how you put those two things together, to say the least. So I don't know, it'd be really interesting. Like there's some there's some interesting mayors afoot in the uh, in the northeast there, so to speak. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm very curious about whether what Valerie can do to, to help Montreal sort of like prevent its, you know, Berlinification in that way of going from poor but sexy to, you know, being financialized, you know, virtually overnight. Well, that's a good point. I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't know that any any mayor with any sort of Bloombergian uh, inclinations can avoid the financialization aspect. Um, you know, <laughs> the tax revenue has to come from somewhere. And if they aren't going to be able to, um, you know, excise it from, you know, in, in a regressive way, <laughs> you know, then they have to figure out a progressive way to do it. Well, that's why, I mean, all eyes right now in terms of the housing stuff should be on St. Paul. So St. Paul passed like the most aggressive rent control. Uh, I forget the specifics, but basically it's triggered a capital strike. Like all construction has stopped. Landlords are refusing to, to engage with it at all. And, you know, and so it's interesting reading some of the, you know, the mainstream coverage of it, which is like economists say rent control is bad, period. And that, you know, that it will just, you know, deprive, deprive the supply of housing. And, you know, again, Michelle Wu is going to try if she, she can do guns and butter and, and figure out how to put those two together. It'll be really interesting. And I know like Minneapolis just across the river from St. Paul was considering a similar measure and they're sort of looking on as well. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see what carrots and sticks hopefully can be brought to bear on developers to you know keep that pipeline going versus, you know, simply, uh, you know, taking their ball and bat and going home the moment that they get these measures they don't like. So I don't know. We'll see. It could be the the cold the cold fusion of, of urbanism at this point. To see if you can get rent control to work. And I like that the cold fusion of urbanism in North America is happening in some of the northern latitudes because I do think that that's where the where the future is. That's where the future climate refugees are headed. And if they're headed to places that have you know reasonable uh, 
social policies um, and reasonable uh, rules about building. I mean, I know Minneapolis, as you mentioned, just rolled back their um, requirement that uh, you know, they, they basically dezoned or upzoned all of the single-family residential uh, districts for uh, multifamily housing, which was which is a pretty big deal. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to sort of see how that shakes out for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's all the thoughts I have on housing at the moment there. Uh, other than, again, that Austin piece. I mean, God, I recommend everybody, we'll put that in the show notes to go to that New York Times Magazine piece about, you know, in terms of what it was doing to drive people into, like, into unincorporated Austin. I mean, there was, like, appalling, every, every appalling trend is out there. Like, not just the single-family renters, but, like, you know, the unincorporated territory, where the caps on short-term rentals don't apply. So people are out there building like 30 bedroom Airbnb McMansions. The people who built together elaborate Airbnb networks and putting together passive income. I mean, again, that's always been my thought about Airbnb, which is another company I'm not a fan of in the slightest because yeah, like handing people the tools to financialize themselves and build them build like amateur landlord networks who of course were begging for a bailout at the beginning of the pandemic when that shut down. Uh, just, you know, it's just pouring kerosene on, on all of these trends. And so, I don't know, yeah, the, the Times piece does a really good job of sort of seeing how that particular bonfire got made and, you know, and what's been charred to death inside. Of <laughs> good Lord. Well, before we burn everything down, I know you have a conference to get to, and uh, uh, my closet is surrounded by glass, and people are kind of peering at me, uh, wondering when I'm going to uh, exit. So maybe we should cut it off at a half an hour today. You got it. Well, we're always back here, so maybe we'll do some. I'll, I'll see if I get some field updates from Commotion, see if I can round up. It's time, I think, we start recruiting some guest stars, Dan. Now that we've got a couple episodes under our wings, and so let's see who we can get here to join us next time around. Oh, I've got some ideas. Um, in fact, say hello. To if if are, are my karaoke partners from our Tok- Tokyo expedition going to be there? Oh, uh, We'll see. I'm, I'm looking forward to running into Slee Reynolds from LADOT, and um, yeah, I think there'll be a few other folks from uh, from that era. See, that seems like a million years ago, five years ago in Tokyo, and the eve of the end of everything seemingly wow send them my best i will it's a long long time and a continent away all right well on that note let's wrap it up here thanks as all for listening i'm off to la central market to have a coffee and catch up with a friend i haven't seen in years and now i can't think of a better way to spend the morning in the city 